if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Well, good afternoon, Corey. Good afternoon. This is going to be kind of an interesting afternoon, sort of an unusual afternoon, the kind of afternoons that maybe most people don't have. We're going to spend the afternoon talking about the legacy of Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict Sixteenth, but maybe more people's afternoons should be like this. I agree. <laughs> I think there's a far there's far worse ways to spend a Friday afternoon, especially in January, <laughs> than, than sitting around and discussing the kind of monumental legacy mm-hmm. of Joseph Ratzinger slash Benedict the Sixteenth. In, in fact, I'll just say something about what we call him. Right? I think most popes are just referred to by their papal name. Sure. It's not typical to often mention the pre-papal name of most popes, but it's interesting with Pope Benedict XVI that a lot of times people will talk about Joseph Ratzinger. And I think one of the reasons is he was so accomplished prior to becoming pope. He already had a monumental reputation. And so people had known that name, Joseph Ratzinger, for a long time. Right. And, And when you talk about his accomplishments, his legacy, his intellectual contributions to the Catholic church or even to Western civilization, a lot of those were accomplished while he was still Joseph Ratzinger. Mm -hmm. So uh, we probably will cycle back and forth a little bit between that. In fact, maybe as a little bit of a thing is when we talk about the things that he did prior to Pope, we'll refer to him as Ratzinger and afterwards (laughs) as Benedict XVI. But I want to open this first conversation. So this is going to be the first of three conversations this afternoon Mm -hmm. that we're going to have about Benedict and his contributions to Catholicism. And to open this first of the three, I want to tell you a little bit of an anecdote. And I'm going to uh, disclose a little something. I do not at this time, nor have I ever had a tattoo. I am. Thank you for sharing. I am untattooed. However, I serious, seriously, seriously considered getting a tattoo. I came this close to doing it. And in fact, I almost got it when I was in Rome one time. Uh, right after I deterred, became Catholic, I entered the church. I was going to get a small tattoo on my wrist uh, that said, be not afraid. Mm-hmm. Because I was so inspired by obviously the legacy of St. John Paul II. And right. that really kind of was his, almost like his, his motto, you know, his tagline, his banner, be not afraid. It was the first thing he said when he stepped out on the balcony when he was named Pope. Mm-hmm. And he brought it up over and over and over again, that in the, in the face of all of the opposition and fears and things that we had at the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, the message from St. John Paul II was, be not afraid. So I was going to get that right there on my wrist so that every time I looked down, I would be reminded of what um, John Paul II told us. Mm-hmm. But I, I chickened out and I didn't get it. And so, but uh, just this last week, I've reconsidered 
getting tattooed. Oh. And now what I'm thinking about is having on one wrist, it say in small letters, be not afraid. And on my other wrist say, be not confused. Oh, okay. Because the, this is now the addition because these are sort of, this is be not confused is sort of a statement from the, uh, the last spiritual testament of Pope Benedict XVI mm-hmm. issued uh, just hours before his passing or right after his I think his it was passing. right after, yeah, but very recently. And it was kind of the last thing he wanted to say to the world. You know, he wrote a final letter. And you think about if you could write one last letter before you pass, what would you want to say to the world? And that phrase stood out. And it, it struck me that this was sort of the legacy of these two great popes mm-hmm. to not, in the face of all the trials and uncertainties not only in general of humanity and life, but in particular at this time in history, to not be afraid and not to be confused. Mm-hmm. So y- you have, I think, that last letter, or at least the relevant portion. Yeah. you want to say something about that? Yeah, so, so the letter, it's interesting. He actually wrote it back in 2006 when he was still Pope, um, but he just it was released right after his death. Um, and apparently he stood by what he wrote and didn't see fit to to change it in all those years of being Pope and then as being Pope Emeritus after his retirement. So it's really his statement to the world about his life and what he wanted to leave as his legacy and what he wanted people to know, um, what he wanted to teach. Um, he was always a teacher um, through his whole life. And so there are, there are a number of different things in the letter, but kind of the, the very heart of it, and it's not very long, um, but the, the very heart of it is, is this paragraph that you're quoting there about not being confused. And so he says, stand firm in the faith. Do not be confused. Often it seems as if science, on the one hand, the natural sciences, on the other, historical research, especially exegesis of the Holy Scriptures, has irrefutable insights to offer that are contrary to the Catholic faith. I have witnessed from times long past the changes in natural science and have seen how apparent certainties against the faith vanished proving themselves not to be science, but philosophical interpretations only apparently belonging to science. Just as, moreover, it is in dialogue with the natural sciences that faith has learned to understand the limits of the scope of its affirmations and thus its own specificity. And he goes into, he says, for 60 years now, I've followed theology, I've followed biblical studies, I've seen the changing of generations and hypotheses come and go. He talks about liberals and existentialists and Marxists and how all these things have have come and then been pushed over by the next thing. Um, I've seen how out of the tangle of hypotheses, the reasonableness of faith has emerged and is emerging anew. Jesus Christ is truly the way, the truth, and the life. And the church in all her shortcomings is truly his body. So I can, I can definitely see how you'd see that as a parallel statement to be not afraid and e- equally inspiring. Yeah, right. I mean, and that's how I took it, you know, and I still take it. I'm quite serious about the tattoo <laughs> thing. Uh, and, and, you know, right, because there's two things that I think when we look at this point in history, Mm-hmm. And so many things that are, you know, intimidating and frightening about this point in history, in terms of the position of the church at this point in history. And number one, we're tempted to give in to despair, mm-hmm. but also tempted to give in to confusion about what the truth is. And, you know, we had the one great Pope, John Paul II, who said, don't give in to despair, be courageous. Mm-hmm. 
And on the other hand, this other pope who is his successor saying, and don't allow yourself to be confused. It recalls the words of St. Paul to not be blown about by the various winds of teaching and doctrines and heresies and, and false teachers that will come along because false teachers and false teachings and heresies and intellectual fads will come and go. But the thing that endures, the thing that is the same yesterday, today, and forever is the truth of Jesus Christ. And to be brave enough to not be confused. So I think that, you know, when I think about Pope Benedict's legacy, those words, in many ways for me, sum up so much of what his intellectual legacy and his contributions to Catholicism have been and are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's drill down on that. We're going to talk about that in this conversation. So as I said, we're sitting here for the afternoon talking about the contributions of Benedict XVI to Catholicism, and we're going to break this conversation up into three episodes. And the first one, we're going to jump into this and talk about faith and reason, Mm -hmm. because that's one of the things he alluded to into that passage that you shared, Right. that there is not a conflict between faith and reason. Right. And it's so easy to become confused about that because the testimony of the 20th century and increasingly the 21st century is that faith and reason are at odds one with one another. And uh, Joseph Ratzinger, you know, AKA Pope Benedict XVI, was very clear that faith and reason are not in opposition to each other. Mm-hmm. And one of the most famous uh, statements of that was a lecture that he gave. Actually, he gave it while he was Pope. Yes. Although the, the ideas that he had been unpacking for, throughout his career. But you want to talk about the Regensburg Lecture. Yeah. So this was a lecture he delivered in 2006. So he'd been Pope for about a year at that point. Um, and he was returning to a university that he used to be a professor at, the University of Regensburg in Germany. Um, and so he had this opportunity. Um, if you read the lecture, it sounds like he was actually pretty geeked to be able to do it because like back on his home turf um, after all those years of being working in the Vatican under John Paul. And he chose to center that lecture on the relationship between faith and, and reason uh, and on the, the reasonableness of faith and the reasonableness of God at, at the core. Kind of the, the statement that I would say kind of encapsulates the theme of the lecture is not to act in accordance with reason is contrary to God's nature. And he's unpacking that throughout this lecture and, and talking about a lot of related ideas in it. Um, but that's kind of at, at the heart of it, that, that God is reasonable and we ought to act reasonably and that faith is not contrary to reason. Okay, so I'd like to introduce just a, a little distinction. As you unpacked it there, as, as Benedict unpacked it, that God is reasonable and to act in accordance with God is reasonable. I'd like to also distinguish belief. Mm-hmm. So there's action. In other words, to live my life in service to Christ is a reasonable thing to mm-hmm. do. To obey the commandments is a reasonable thing to do. There's a whole sort of other dimension to this, which is, is belief in God a rational or irrational action? Mm-hmm. Or is belief by definition irrational or unreasonable? And that certainly has been the argument, well, really for thousands of years from certain philosophers and sides, mm-hmm. but it has become the dominant argument 
of the materialists of the last couple of hundred years that say the only thing that we can reasonably believe in is that which is verifiable by our five senses. Mm -hmm. So that which we can see, feel, touch, taste, measure, it is reasonable to believe in that. And, And they'll say that's science. I would argue that scientism, it's the philosophy that only the empirical sciences are valid. Mm -hmm. Ed and I talked about that in another episode recently, but right. So anyway, what what Benedict is getting at is that God is reasonable and our belief in him is reasonable and to act in accordance with his will is reasonable. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. Absolutely. That's the sort of, if you were to say the Regensburg lecture, what it's about, but now let's drill down a little bit. Yeah. So um, to, to begin with, he's talking about the relationship of faith and reason and, and the necessity of reason, because reason is how we evaluate whether something is true or not. So by revelation in, in our faith, there are claims of truth. Um, fundamental claims to Christianity would include things like there is a God, he is a Trinity. Um, the second person of the Trinity was incarnate, died, rose again to save us. Um, and so those are all truth claims that we have by faith and reason is how we examine those and we figure out whether they are reasonable or not, whether they make sense, whether they contradict, um, known, known facts about the universe. Um, and so there's a complementarity there to faith and reason because there, there are truths that we, we can't, um, discover purely based on natural sciences or, or historical analysis, um, especially those, those truth claims. Um, but they're given to us in faith and then they, they could be reasonable or unreasonable. Um, there, there are lots of religious claims out there, um, that are contrary to the Catholic faith and we can use reason to evaluate them just as we can to evaluate, um, the, the Catholic claims. And so Benedict is, is arguing that instead of, um, blindly accepting the faith and not trying to understand it through reason. We, we use our reason, which is given by God to, to parse claims, to analyze them. And we believe that the the claims of the church and the claims of Christ are true, but we believe so in, in harmony with our reason that our reason helps us to, to plumb the depths of those teachings and understand them and distinguish them from other teachings that are not reasonable and that are not true. Right. I mean, in some sense, the, the faith project or the Christian project is a matter of unpacking what we know, mm-hmm. right? So certain things that we, we know, right? For example, there were accounts floating around, you know, in the early decades of the first century that a man named Jesus from a town named Nazareth had been executed by the Romans and there were numerous eyewitness claims that he had risen from the dead. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's an indisputable historical fact that there were those claims and people ran around, right? The ancient Greek world making those claims and claiming to be witnesses to it. Right. One then can utilize reason to say, well, what can we conclude from that? Can we examine the reasonableness of the claims about the resurrection? And is the resurrection a reasonable thing to believe in? And how does it reasonably align with other Christian doctrines or other philosophical you know, premises that we have, right? So reason becomes a tool that we can apply to questions, and they are questions of faith. 
you know, when I, you know, I know, you know, when you were in college ministry and when I was doing college ministry, like one of the like freshman, you know, sort of things mm-hmm. is to say some kind of smart alecky thing. Like you think you've come up with something super clever when you say, well, you know, can God invent a rock that's so heavy he can't sure, lift sure. it, right? You know, and I always enjoyed that because it's it's fun to sort of, you know, apply reason to that question, mm-hmm. right? By the way, for the listeners who are wondering, the answer, in my opinion, is that yes, God can invent, God is all powerful, but he can invent a rock that he can't lift. He could then choose to lift it, at which case point it would cease to be a rock that he can't lift. In other words, he would have to fundamentally alter its, its essence. It could, right? And I have always understood that thing to be a way of understanding free will. God can make us with free will where we can make choices. He could choose to violate our free will, at which point we would cease to be fully right. human. Right. And so in a sense, God can impose limits on himself and he can create things about which he draws a circle around them and says, this is the essence of that thing. Mm-hmm. And I choose not to violate it. Right. Right. Okay. But just that little exercise of us bantering about that or exploring that is a case of where Benedict is saying from time immemorial, one can apply reasonable processes and, and rational examination to questions of faith. Right. Right. And, you know, that's the sort of a fun freshman thing to talk about, but we could do the same thing about the nature of God and obviously theologians and philosophers have for thousands of years. What is the nature of God? What is the nature of of revelation? What is the nature of the Trinity? What is the nature of the Christ? You know, what are the two natures of Christ? What is the nature of revelation, right? I mean, this Mm -hmm. is a whole subject of theology in which case, or religious philosophy where we apply intellectual reason standard, which is a gift that mankind has, we apply rationality to questions of faith. Mm-hmm. Now, the atheist or the materialist says this is all ridiculous because none of it can be measured, be seen, felt, measured, right? Right. Uh, with, a, you know, with a scale or a ruler or whatever, <clears throat> which is just ridiculous because of course it can't be, but we're not talking about things. And it's a philosophical premise or it's really, it's really an assertion that the only things that exist and the only things that matter and the only things that should be considered are those things can be seen, felt, measured, right? Right, and, and Benedict is arguing against a limitation on reason that reduces it to empiricism, to, to simply observation right. of the physical world. The, the classical tradition of reason from the Greeks on down is much broader than that. It includes scientific reasoning, um, but we can reason about all kinds of things, including philosophy and theology. You know, Ed and I were talking about this in another episode recently, and we talked about this specific question. And, you know, what can you, what do you say to the materialist mm-hmm. who says all we can talk about is the, that which is, is empirically demonstrable to our five senses? And I go, well, try car keys. <laughs> And he's going to cry that what you've done is unjust. And you say, unjust? Well, what is this thing, justice, of which you speak? Mm-hmm. Can you show me the data? And show me how justice can be seen, felt, measured. Of course, he's got a lump on his head. And I'll go, this is injustice. And I'll go, well, no, it's a lump on your head, right? Mm-hmm. You, your claim that that is an unjust lump on your head is an appeal to something that cannot be measured with the senses. And so even, I mean, that's why I've always believed that material, strict materialism is really 
an unsustainable thing. Nobody can really live that way. And so anyway, that's an aside. But mm-hmm. Benedict in the Regensburg Lecture is making this claim that reason and faith are, what was the phrase, the two wings of? Something? Yeah, that, that's St. John Paul's phrase, um, although I think he may have borrowed it from an earlier source. Yeah. The, the reason and faith being the two wings on which mankind ascends to the truth. Yeah, talking about earlier sources, one of the things that Benedict does in the Regensburg Lecture is he pe- appeals back to some of the great intellectual uh, mm-hmm. traditions in Catholicism, in particular on this point, St. Anselm, mm-hmm. uh, who was uh, a theologian in the latter part of the 11th century, Archbishop of Canterbury. And I've done some videos and some other episodes on Anselm, but one of the things that he talked about, his motto was faith seeks understanding. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that because we believe, we want to know. Right? A reasonable person says, comes to say, I have come to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but now I want to understand that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to apply reason to that understanding. I'm going to say, I have come to believe there is a creator God. Now I want to understand the creator God. So I'm going to apply my God-given reason and my intellect to trying to understand as much about it as I can. So Benedict is tapping into the mm. traditions of Anselm and oh, Aquinas. Yeah, yeah. And, He's very much in continuity. Yeah. yeah, on those things. So another element of, of this address is he's talking about uh, the Greek philosophical tradition and the tradition of, of reason that comes down to us from classical Greek civilization. And, and that is part of a, a, a longstanding idea um, in Christianity that the sort of the opportune time had come or the fullness of time had come for Christ uh, to be incarnate, that God had used the history of mankind and the history of, of mankind's thought and, and religion and philosophy up to that time to, to prepare the ground uh, for, for the incarnation and, and for the preaching of the gospel. And so of, of course, centrally to that, you have the revelation of, of his, um, of his character given to the Jews um, but you also have uh, the Greeks with um, their their philosophy, their focus on rationality, which actually had already come into contact with and, and dialogue with the the Jewish scriptures um, in the in the later period before Christ. Um, you see that especially in the wisdom literature. Um, it, but also the Greeks had conquered most of the Eastern Mediterranean and had spread their language, and so you had a, had a common language for people to to speak and a common. Uh, tradition of rationality for people to make arguments in and, and to make very fine philosophical distinctions. And then of course you had the, the Roman empire, which had politically united that area and had built roads and aqueducts and cities and all of the infrastructure um, that the apostles would then use to, to go out and spread the gospel. And so Benedict in a long tradition sees the, the Greek philosophy and, and the Greek use of reason as one of those things that prepared the way for Christ. And that was fundamentally in harmony with, with Christian doctrine and with revelation. And that would be drawn up into and purified by Christians, especially in the, the ecumenical councils. Think um, of Nicaea and Constantinople that used those, those Greek philosophical concepts to define how we are to understand the Trinity and how we under, understand Christ and his incarnation. Um, and so, so Benedict is a big champion of that. And, and he talks about a, a sort of process of de-Hellenization or de-Greekification essentially of Christianity that some want to uh, carry out. And he's very much against that. So that isn't just recent, although we'll say in a moment, 
it's become really accelerated in the sure, last century. Sure. But way back to the church fathers, there was this kind of question about what is Greek philosophy or what should Greek philosophy have to do with Christianity? Mm-hmm. And it was one of the great church fathers, Tertullian, who famously said, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? And part of that was the argument that how much of Greek philosophy or Greek thought ought to be involved in Christianity versus just special revelation. Mm-hmm. Now, this is an important point. And, you know, like G.K. Chester always said, some of the same heresies or the same mistakes could make being made over and over again. Yeah, there yeah. is a long tradition within Christianity that, Christianity itself, Revelation, Catholicism, whatever, is merely special revelation. Special revelation. It is merely, there's a mystical tradition. The way we know things is because they are revealed to us and we plunge into that and that we don't bring these kind of extraneous rational traditions into it. Just just to be clear, I would identify that as sort of a, as you said, a recurring heresy rather than a genuine tradition of of the church. Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, what I mean is that there's a like a long history of it, right? right? I don't right. mean it's a, a tradition in the capital T sense of, right. of the word. I mean that there is a tradition in the Without people that, being able to see the capital T's and the small T's. I just right, think. exactly. <laughs> there, it, it has been a thing um, on and off. And you see that emerge at various times that, you know, real faith is only appropriated outside the intellectual tradition. It's only this, it's only mystical. It's an emphasis on the mystical. It's an emphasis on special revelation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. Well, Benedict himself in the Regensburg address, um, he highlights several sort of stages in the process of people trying to de-Hellenize or de-rationalize the faith. He, the first one he identifies is that being a current of the Protestant Reformation, of them seeing the scholastic tradition, which is built on the Aristotelian tradition, which is Greek philosophy, and seeing that and seeing that as alien to, to Christianity and wanting to strip that away. And he he identifies a few others that other movements that are more recent, but that's that's one of the big ones. Yeah, but, but of course, like I said, you know, Tertullian is making that right. statement about what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem long before so that. So there's a it, continuity it, there. There's always this temptation to sort of abandon rationality. And I think that one of the scriptural demonstrations of this is St. Paul in Romans chapter one. Mm-hmm. So famously, if you read Romans chapter one, St. Paul says, look, what can be known about the creator can be observed from his creation. Mm-hmm. We can know that we have a God of order. We can know we have a God that is, you know, generative of the good. We can know that we have a God that is rational, right? There's a lot of things that we can learn about God, but just right. by the, from the creator, by observing the things that he has made. And therefore he said, all men not just Christians, not just Jews and Christians, but all men, without, even without special, special revelation, this is called general revelation, mm-hmm. can simply look around and, and, and come to a certain knowledge of truth. Now, that doesn't tell you that Jesus was the Son of God. It doesn't mm-hmm. tell you that Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. It doesn't tell you that there's a trinity. It doesn't tell you those things. Those things come by special revelation, but it does help you get to a certain point in which you say there is probably a creator. Mm-hmm. There is probably a God of order. The universe is set up in certain ways. There is certain natural law to the universe. Mm-hmm. And that all men uh, from all cultures and all religions can sort of testify to that. Now, the thing with the Greeks was, you know, a few minutes ago, as you were unpacking it very eloquently, 
right? So this whole idea that at the right time it came and, you know, people famously said, right, it took Alexander the Great. If Alexander the Great hadn't conquered as he did, then the writings of the apostles would have not circulated beyond Palestine because they would have written by the New Testament Aramaic. Mm-hmm. And there are very few people outside Palestine that spoke Aramaic, so it would have not spread. If the Romans didn't have roads and post offices and postal services, then the letters of Paul and the other apostles wouldn't have spread, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And the Greeks laid down, as you said a moment ago, with Aristotle, they taught us things about being and essence. They taught us geometry. Mm-hmm. They taught us rationality. And so when it came to understanding certain things about who God is, the creation, the nature of God, the Trinity. How do we understand uh, one God and three persons? How do we understand uh, uh, Christ with two natures? The, the writings of Aristotle and the Greek philosophers about essence and nature were very helpful, as you said, to the church fathers and mm-hmm. being able to apply that. And like you say, that de-Hellenization that he decried, you know, when I went, I was, you know, I'm a generation ahead of you or whatever, right? But mm-hmm. when I was in a very liberal university, the philosophy department, very liberal university, when I was a much younger man, uh, you know, it was a dirty word to talk about Greek philosophy. And I was there studying, my major was <laughs> Greek philosophy, but it was a dirty thing. And it was very, a dirty word to, within uh, sort of progressive Christian circles mm-hmm. um, to say, hey, look, like, like, let's talk about Greek philosophy or let's talk about Thomas Aquinas or let's talk about these things. It's like, well, that's nasty. It's importing, you know, white classical Greek philosophy into something that's supposed to be mystical and unknowable. Which is kind of funny because there's a convergence there between your more progressive wings of Protestantism or theology in general and your... your um, your um uh, sort of fundamentalist or evangelical who is also uh, often very skeptical about philosophy because they're like, show me that in the Bible. What, how is this um, relevant to the faith? They would say, yeah, Athens has nothing to do with Jerusalem. And, and see, that's ironic mm-hmm. because on the one hand, what they think they're saying is that by sort of banning, you know, de-Hellenizing, you know, by banning Athens from Jerusalem, that in a sense, what they're doing is making the faith more accessible, but it's actually making it less accessible mm-hmm. because, because the point um, of the Catholic tradition and culminated in what Benedict says at Regensburg is that, and what Paul says in Romans chapter one is that reason gives access. Right, it's a sort of on-ramp. It's an on-ramp, right? And so I can talk to the atheist, I can talk to the Buddhist, I can talk to the Muslim, I can talk to any person who's a reasonable person. We may or may not, you know, at the end of the discussion agree, but we have a rational basis for discussing our beliefs. Whereas what it comes down to is I know it's true simply because Jesus told me it's true. The Holy Spirit told me it's true. Well, he didn't tell me. Well, then I guess you're a bad person, right? Right. It becomes simply just assertion. Assertion. Right. Yeah. Right. So within Catholicism, right, you have this tradition. It goes from the church fathers other than Tertullian. Uh, you can look at Augustine. You can look at St. Anselm that we mentioned. You can mm-hmm. look at St. Thomas Aquinas. But you can also look at... Um, Catholic artists and engineers and scientists. You can look at Dante and Michelangelo and Gregor Mendel with the pea pods and the genetics, right? Mm. And all of that is because 
we can utilize reason and rationality to understand the creation and understand the revelation and understand the nature of God. And and that's our God-given gift. Yeah, absolutely. When I was a student at a Calvinist seminary and was being inculcated in hyper-Calvinism to some degree or another, mm-hmm. boy, they didn't like Catholicism. And boy, they had nothing good to say about Thomas Aquinas and the Catholic tradition. And sure. part of it was that there was this, this notion that Catholicism thought that we could get to God by our own reason. And that was, that was the, the talking point, that Catholicism teaches that you can be saved by your own reason, whereas we as Calvinists believe we're only saved by grace. And of course, over time, the reason I'm sitting here on the Considering Catholicism <laughs> podcast is I came to realize that that wasn't true. Catholicism doesn't teach that reason gets you all the way home. Uh, no Catholic has ever taught that. What reason does is it is a tool to help you understand revelation. And as you put it, it's sort of an on-ramp. It's a way that you get so far. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's a, the basis of conversation with other faiths or with non-believers. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's natural to human beings and, and therefore shared by people of different faiths or no faith. Now, another point that he makes in the Regensburg lecture is that God himself by nature is reasonable. Mm-hmm. Do, do you want to unpack that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So kind of his his jumping off point um, is that, that quote that I uh, began this whole discussion with, that not to act in accordance with reason is contrary to God's nature. And he pulls that out of a, an old Byzantine dialogue um, between two interlocutors who are talking about uh, the nature of God. Um, and... and that gets into a, a concept of, that's opposed to the idea that, that God is reasonable that has often been called voluntarism, which is essentially to say that, uh, that God, rather than being reasonable, his primary uh, characteristic is his will. And so a minute ago, we were talking about if you cut reason out of the equation, then everything you say is simply assertions. You're just kind of brute force putting things out there. Um, that's the image of, of God in a voluntaristic um, conception of him is that he's not uh, being reasonable. Um, he, he could say one thing today and he could say the opposite tomorrow. Um, he's not limited by reason. Uh, he he can contradict himself. Uh, he he simply asserts through will and through power um, what he wants to do, what he wants to say, what he wants to be true. That there isn't a, a sort of an anchor of reason and true truthfulness in God. And Benedict is 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 countering that understanding of God. He he wants everyone to know that the Christian understanding of God is that he he is reasonable. He, he is the logos. He is the word. He's the reasonableness underlying all of creation and not that he, he simply um, makes decisions arbitrarily or capriciously. Right. <clears throat> so there's this whole thing about um, God's properties. Mm-hmm. And this is like a whole nother episode yeah, that we yeah. on this thing, but I just, I think it's at least worth touching sure. this yeah. point real quick. One of the things in philosophy and 
r- rational discussions of the faith with people like Augustine and <laughs> Anselm and Aquinas has been the notion of God's nature and properties. Mm-hmm. So when I look at this chair and I say, well, the chair is brown, brown is a property of the chair. It's not in ch- the chair's essence to be brown. Right. It could right? be otherwise. It could be blue. Right. You could have a blue chair, you could have a red chair, whatever. It just, ha- this one happens to be brown. But when it comes to things like reason or reason or rationality or goodness, truth or goodness or beauty, those things are not properties of God in the way that the chair is brown. God doesn't Mm -hmm. just happen to be truth or reasonability. Mm -hmm. God doesn't just happen to be goodness. God doesn't just happen to be uh, beautiful. As if he could be otherwise. As if he could be otherwise. He is the definition of those things. Mm -hmm. Those things are who he is, right? They are his essence. Right. As as Benedict quoted, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Not Jesus has, you can show you the way, he can teach you the truth, he can give you life. Like he is those things. In fact, the degree to which things, other things are reasonable or Mm -hmm. true uh, or good or beautiful is the degree to which they uh, der- derive from God those properties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or right? participate in participate his in those yeah. properties. Wow, we waded pretty deep into some <laughs> philo- philosophical stuff here. So, for those of our listeners who like to tune in for the lighthearted banter, we got into you got some, a tattoo story out of this. I, I, I mean, you got yeah. a tattoo. Look, you got a tattoo story out of what this, do you want and from I us? make it. Yeah, I make a tattoo. <laughs> so, uh, but we waded into some stuff. But you know, Benedict the Sixteenth was an intellectual giant. He contributed so much to Catholicism in the 20th and going into the 21st century. I think he'll be a Pope who will be remembered for those contributions. And so we, I think, uh, owed it to him to do a little homage and wade mm-hmm. a little bit into the uh, philosophy uh, and the deep pool of philosophy and the faith and reason thing. Um, so thanks for sticking. Corey and I are going to spend the rest of this afternoon talking about Benedict XVI. We'll break this up into some other episodes. And we're going to next talk about one of the things that is causing us so much confusion in the latter part of the 20th and beginning of the 21st century. And that is the dictatorship of relativism. Yes. So tune in for that. We're going to keep talking and it'll be in the next episode. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts and please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its Saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think, greg at consideringcatholicism.com.